We're going to continue in John chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can open there. Should be the scripture on the screen as well. Uh, There are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one and uh, follow along. And there are outlines in your bulletin as well. And all of the uh, printed messages are in the in the bulletin, so you can, um, I mean, in the website, so you can track with them there if you missed one or would like to uh, go back to something else that, uh, that I've covered. Just a short text this week, uh, verses 21 to 24 of John 14, but they're packed with a lot of, uh, a lot of good things. Jesus is speaking to the 12 or the 11 in the upper room. Judas has left to betray him. His time is short. And these are his final instructions to his men, his disciples, before the crucifixion. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, that is one of the other apostles named Judas, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him. And make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Sometimes I like to read heavy theology, and in one of my more profound theological works, uh, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, She says, Life is a mystery, Charlie Brown. Do you know the answer? And Charlie lifts up his finger and pontificates, be kind, don't smoke, be prompt, smile a lot, eat sensibly, avoid cavities and mark your ballot carefully, avoid too much sun, send overseas packages early, love all creatures above and below, ensure your belongings and keep the ball low. And then in the last frame, Lucy says to Charlie, hold real still because I'm going to give you a sharp blow on the nose. Well, you know, we all uh, don't like simplistic answers to life's deep questions. And I think for every Christian, there's a deep question that nags at the back of your mind, or it certainly ought to, and that is, how can I experience a deeper, closer, more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, with my Savior. Although all Christians believe certain core doctrines, the heart of the Christian life is not intellectually subscribing to certain core doctrines. And although all Christians hold to common moral standards, the heart of the Christian life is not just keeping moral standards, At the heart of the Christian life is knowing Christ personally, coming to know him. The apostle Paul, before his conversion, certainly knew doctrine. He was a Pharisee. 
the Apostle Paul was moral as he saw it, although he was persecuting the church, but he thought he was doing a good thing and certainly thought he was keeping all the commandments, but he didn't know Christ. And when he came to know Christ, he said, you know, that I may know him in Philippians chapter 3 there. And so to enter into a personal relationship with Christ through faith and his atoning blood and his resurrection is the center of Christian living. Also, as you know, relationships are not static. Uh, If you've been married for any length of time, you know that. Even though you know your mate very well, there's always a deeper level. There's always more. We can always discover new things and talk about different things. And you have to work at relationships so that they might grow. And so one of the most important questions for us as we face a new year, I think especially, is how can I grow to know Christ more intimately in the coming new year? And in our text, Jesus answers that question, but I warn you, at first, you're going to say, that sounds pretty simplistic. Jesus' answer to that question is that we will grow to know him more intimately by obeying him. And you say, that's it? (laughs) Obeying him? Uh, The key to knowing Christ more deeply is to obey him? Well, that's what he says here. If we keep his commandments, we have his commandments and keep them, he says, then both the Father and Jesus will love us, and he promises he will disclose himself to us. And furthermore, he and the Father will kind of move in and take up residence in our lives. And so the key to it all, which he repeats, is that we obey him. Now, before we look at that in more detail, let me make something very clear. What I'm going to share this morning is for those who believe in Jesus Christ only. If anyone is here who has never come to Christ as a sinner and said, Lord, I need you to save me from my sin, and to save means to deliver me from God's judgment because I am guilty, and I trust in what you did on the cross for me, then nothing else I say this morning is relevant to you because you cannot get saved by keeping God's commandments. No matter how hard you try, you're going to fall short, and God demands perfection because he is perfectly holy. And no one with any sin of any kind is going to be allowed into heaven. Uh, All sin must be judged. No one can love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one can love his neighbor as he loves himself. So we all fall short and we all have sinned. And so we can't be saved by obedience But the good news of the Bible is, as Paul puts it very succinctly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says, therefore, by grace, that means unmerited favor, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so faith is what brings us into a love relationship with Jesus Christ where God counts all of our sin to Christ, all of his righteousness to us. And it's through that then that we enter a relationship with him 
And obedience is the fruit that results in knowing him in a deeper way. But it comes after salvation. So I need to make that really clear. Now, Jesus is giving these words about obedience to his disciples to comfort and encourage them. They are about to face a severe trial in that their Lord and Master is going to be taken away, not just by saying goodbye and leaving, but through a brutal crucifixion. And it was shocking. He knew the trials they would face after his departure. He knew the persecution they would endure. And so he knew that they would be sustained through those trials by coming into a closer daily relationship with him even after he ascended to heaven. And so he tells them and us here how we can do that, and that will sustain us in our trials as well. The first thing to note then is that obedience is the evidence that we love Jesus Christ. Now, I realize when I'm using the word obedience in this message, there is the risk that I'm going to be accused of legalism. And I say that because of experience. Uh, I, I have been accused of that before. One time at the church I pastored in California years ago, uh, someone came up to me and handed me a book on grace by a very pro- popular preacher and said, uh, I think you need to read this. And I asked why. And they said, well, you tend to be legalistic. And I said, uh, well, explain to me, well, how, how is that? And they said, well, you're, you're always preaching about obedience. And I said, well, yeah, I, I think that's a New Testament theme. And uh, I, I would point out here, Jesus emphasizes obedience, you'll notice, in verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24. And when you get to chapter 15, he hits obedience in verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, and verse 17. And I think that Jesus was not being legalistic. Uh, There's something mis Somebody's misunderstanding something when they think that obeying Christ is legalistic. They don't understand God's grace. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Notice, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, God's grace instructs us to live obediently, denying sin and living under righteousness. I just cited the wonderful promise in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and most people who know the Lord are familiar with that, those verses, but we shouldn't forget Ephesians 2:10. It goes on to say, after we're saved by grace, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. And so God's grace produces a lifelong walk. That's the picture there. Step-by-step journey of good works or obedience to God. Now, the key that keeps obedience from becoming legalistic is to love Jesus Christ. 
And you'll notice how Christ hammers on love in our text. If you jump back up to verse 15, where he mentions obedience, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then again in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, uh, he will keep my word. And then in verse 24, the negative, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And so love for Christ is what motivates us to obey Christ. And so it's not a legalistic, uh, impersonal kind of thing, but it is a love relationship. Now, we have to keep in mind, biblical love is not just feeling warm fuzzies for somebody, but biblical love, as I explained a few weeks ago, is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that uh, shows itself by seeking the highest good of the one loved. And in the case of Christ, his highest good is that he be glorified. And so if we love Christ, it means we're committed to glorifying Christ, which means making him look good in our lives by our attitudes, our words, our behavior. We want Jesus Christ to look good in our lives. Christ glorified the Father by obeying him in all things, especially the cross. And so we glorify Christ when we obey him out of love. And when we sin, we dishonor Christ. We make him look bad. Other people go, man, I don't think I want to be a Christian if that's what being a Christian means. So our aim, again, should be to obey him so that we glorify him and all of that because we love him. Now, Jesus indicates here in our text that there are two sides to obeying him. First of all, to obey Christ's commandments, we have to have them. Verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments. And we can't obey what we don't even know we're supposed to obey unless it happens by accident. I read an incredible story once about a campus worker who led a young man to Christ on campus. And a few weeks later, he met with him and he was ecstatic. And and the worker asked, well, why? And he said, well, God really blessed my weekend. My girlfriend and I had the best time in bed we've ever had. Well, there's a young man who does not have the commandments of Christ. He doesn't have a clue. He is totally influenced by the world and thinks that that was perfectly fine. In fact, that God was blessing his immorality. Uh, You can't keep commandments you don't know about. And that means that to have Christ's commandments, you've got to get into God's word. And digest the word to the point where it shapes your worldview. If all you're doing is watching TV and going to movies and reading magazines that are secular and so on, that's going to shape your worldview. And you'll think like that young man, that it's perfectly fine to have sexual relations outside of marriage as long as you love each other. Or you'll think, as the world thinks, that living together before you're married is a good way to decide whether you're compatible. And you'll think, as the world thinks, well, homosexual relations are okay because, after all, people are just wired that way, and so we need to allow that. Or you'll think cheating on exams is fine because everybody does it. Or telling little white lies is fine. Everyone does it. And so on and so on. 
And then you get into God's word. And you begin to realize in God's word that what you thought was right is wrong. And what many of the things you thought were wrong are right. And God's word shapes your understanding of how to please him, how to obey him. If you're struggling with sin, one of the best ways to gain victory over it is to begin to memorize the Word of God. Psalm 119, 111 says, Your Word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Now, here's the deal. There's very seldom that you'll be out in the world and tempted to sin and you'll be carrying your big black Bible with you and you've got a concordance in the other hand and you say, just a moment. I know there's a verse on that somewhere. And you get it out and look it up, and that keeps you from sinning. It doesn't work that way. What keeps you from sinning is having the Word in your mind in advance. That's how Jesus refuted the devil three times. It is written, it is written, it is written, and he cited God's Word. For example, maybe somebody says something, and you're just ready to kind of pick up the rotten tomato and, you know, let fly, or to use another analogy, to, to get your sword out of its sheath and with your tongue, hack them to bits. And it would make you feel really good to do that. And you're about to say something choice to put them down when God reminds you of Proverbs 12:18, which you memorized, which says, There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And having that verse in your mind, it saved me many a time. I've been ready to hack. And I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to bring healing here. And Proverbs 15.1, I didn't put that one in the notes. A gentle, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so, you know, the word is what shapes you. Um, Maybe, guys, you're tempted to click on that link that's going to take you into looking at pornography. And you've been memorizing Scripture, and there's a two-verse, two, I mean, a two-word verse. The, the verse is actually longer. But all you need is these two words to overcome. Flee immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Now, if you can memorize the rest of the verse and the next couple of ones which talk about the Spirit of God dwelling in you, that's good. That's, that's more helpful. But really, all you need to overcome that temptation is to think, flee immorality. Get out of there. Turn and run. Do not stand and fight. Don't think about it. This is time to run. So memorize Scripture. Now, to be honest, that's not enough. I have known Christians when I was in seminary, guys who studied theology, they knew Greek, they knew Hebrew, but they didn't obey it. And so the second part is not only do we need to have Christ's commandments, but to obey Christ's commandments, he says we must keep them. And the obedience that Jesus is talking about is not just outward lip service, but rather doing what God wills from the heart. Remember in Mark chapter 7, Jesus reamed out the Pharisees. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God looks on the heart. And so obedience always begins on the heart or the thought level. That's where you fight the battle 
and either win it or lose it, is how are you thinking in this situation? Is it in line with the Word of God? And by the way, you can't pick and choose which commands you wish to obey. But we all tend to do this. For example, maybe you pride yourself on the fact that you don't drink. And you look down on people that get drunk. Because that's a sin. But then you tolerate your own sin of grumbling and complaining about your circumstances. See, we all have our favorite things. We do those things, or don't do them. And then we castigate those who violate it. But meanwhile, we tolerate our own sins. I think there are a lot of guys who may say, how can anybody be tempted by homosexual sin? And that's not their problem. So they put down the homosexual, and meanwhile, they're looking at porn. See, both of those are sins. And you can't pick and choose and say, well, you know, that's what the Pharisees did. They had their list. And boy, they were good at keeping their list and condemning those who didn't. But their hearts were filled with pride and all sorts of other sins. Now, at this point, maybe you're getting a little panicky because you're thinking, wow, you know, I try to obey the Lord, but I fail a lot. Uh, Does that mean I don't love Christ? Uh, Does that mean I might not be his disciple? While not excusing sin, let me say this. We're not talking about perfection, but direction. What is the direction of your life? We all stumble, but do you get up and keep on the path and keep moving in the same direction toward holiness? It's kind of instructive to note that in John 17, 6, where Jesus is praying his uh, high priestly prayer, He says about the disciples, they have kept your word. They have kept your word. And you want to say, really? I mean, these are the guys that were fighting in the upper room over, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And they're arguing about that right at the Last Supper. Uh, These are the guys. Peter denies that he knows the Lord. They all desert him in the moment of panic in the garden. And... uh, And then Thomas would doubt him. And Jesus says, they've kept God's word. I think he's looking at the overall direction of their lives, not at perfection. I appreciated what A.W. Pink wrote in this regard. He said, two things are true of every Christian. Deep down in his heart, there is an intense, steady longing and yearning to please God to do his will. To walk in full accord with his word. This yearning may be stronger in some than in others. And in each of us it is stronger at some times than at others. Nevertheless, it is there. But in the second place, no real Christian fully realizes this desire. Every genuine Christian has to say with the Apostle Paul, and here he cites Philippians 3.12, not as though I had already attained Either we're already perfect, but I follow after if uh, that I may lay hold of that for which I am laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, I've already mentioned that to keep Christ's commandments, we have to have them in our hearts. But there are four other things in our text and in the wider context of John 14 here that will help us to keep Christ's commandments. First of all, responding to Christ's immutable love will help us keep 
his commandments. I've already talked about our love for Christ, but it's his love for us that's behind our love for him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. And so our focus should be on his love for us. And that's one benefit, by the way, of partaking of the Lord's Supper often is it focuses us on he did that for me. He died for me. The Apostle Paul couldn't shake that. Remember in Galatians 2.20, he said, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then I can see tears welling up in his eyes as he said, who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, it's very personal. He loved me, and he died for me. A second thing that will help us obey is realizing Christ's indwelling presence. That will help us keep his commandments. In verse 23, Jesus promises something amazing. He says, if we love him and keep his word, both he and the Father will come and make their abode with us. It's the only verse in the New Testament specifically says that the Father dwells in us. And so we know that Christ dwells in us, the Spirit dwells in us, the Father dwells in us, so the triune God dwells within us. Um, abode is the same Greek word that Jesus used up in John fourteen three when he said, I, I go and I uh, prepare a place for you and... Uh, in verse, in verse 2, I should say, where he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And that refers to um, our abode in heaven. But here he's talking about God's abode on earth, that he dwells in us. And so you have to ask yourself, is my heart a suitable home for the living God to live in? You know, if people are coming over, you tidy up usually. Some of you may be neat enough without that, but most of us, before someone comes over, we make sure everything's in place and go around and tidy up the house. If we would only remember that our hearts are God's dwelling place, I think we'd tidy up our lives. You know, we wouldn't do some of the sins that we do. How many of you have read My Heart, Christ's Home? Not very many. That's too bad. That's really a profound little book. You can read it in 15 minutes or less. You can find it online. Just type in My Heart, Christ's Home, and it'll take you less than 15 minutes to read it uh, by Robert Boyd Munger. It's just a profound little article. And uh, he, he just pictures that Christ moved into his heart as a house, and then he starts house cleaning. <laughs> And he goes from room to room and says, what's all that, you know? And he starts cleaning up that mess and then this mess. And pretty soon he's the Lord of the house. He's taken over. And it's just a creative little booklet on how Christ dwells in us as believers. Uh, I can't remember where it was. I read it years ago, but I've never forgotten the illustration. Watchman Nee pictures God's dwelling in us as having a treasure. And he makes the, the point, he says, if you're walking down the street and you got a quarter in your pocket, you can be pretty happy-go-lucky. 
you can uh, maybe even jog and you don't worry about losing it. If you lose a quarter, no big deal. But he says, if you have $1,000 in your pocket, you walk down the street differently. Every once in a while, you kind of stop and look around. You make sure that baby's in there. And you just check because you got a treasure in your pocket. Now, we can't lose Christ in us, but we can lose the sense of Christ in us. We can lose that sense that I know he is with me. I sense his presence with me. And he is that $1,000 more. He's $10 million. He's our treasure. And so if we would keep that in mind, we would walk more carefully. And we would not be prone to sin. A third thing that will help us to obey his commandments is relying on Christ's indwelling spirit. Jesus promises here that the helper, the Holy Spirit, would soon be in them forever, up in verses 16 and 17. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians chapter 5 that the way that we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh, but instead see the fruit of the Spirit growing in us, is we walk by means of the Spirit. We walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. And, of course, He is the Holy Spirit, which means He produces holiness in us as we depend on Him. So, first of all, responding then to Christ's immutable love, will help us obey his commandments. Secondly, realizing his indwelling presence. Thirdly, relying on his indwelling spirit. And then finally, remembering Christ's incarnate example will help us keep his commandments. And here I'm jumping ahead to our text for our next study in verse 31. Uh, But Jesus says there, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as he, the Father, commanded me. And so Jesus' love for the Father was the reason he obeyed the Father, and he obeyed the Father so that the world would know that Jesus loved him. Now, in this case, he's referring to the ultimate obedience, namely going to the cross. And any way you cut it, the cross was not fun, it was not pleasant, it was horrible. Not just for the physical agony of having your hands and feet nailed to a a cross and hanging there, but the spiritual agony of being mysteriously separated from the Father, that fellowship of eternity momentarily broken as the Father made him sin who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus did that, he says, to show that he loves the Father. You know, when my kids were little, if you'd come over and visited our home, and I had said to you, um, you know, my kids are so obedient, watch this. Kids, eat your ice cream. And they just gobbled down their ice cream. And I said, see how obedient my kids are? You would have said that was no test. I mean, every kid obeys that commandment. The real test of obedience would have been if I had said, kids, eat your spinach. Oh, Dad, you know, do we have to? Yeah, it's good for you. Well, you know, sin, unfortunately, is more like the ice cream than the spinach. It promises you immediate pleasure, 
But as all of us who are fighting the battle of the bulge know, the long-term effects aren't so pleasant. It just kind of goes to places I'd rather it didn't go to. Uh, And on the other hand, spinach, I hate to compare it, but it's more like obedience. It's maybe not fun in the short term, but it yields long-term benefits. You know, where when you obey God, man, it is hard sometimes. But when you do, the blessings long-term are very gratifying and satisfying. And it's the evidence that we love Christ. So, that's the first point there, just that obedience to Christ is the evidence that we love Him. Uh, And then, what does it yield? Well, there are three benefits that obedience yields, and Jesus names them here. First of all, God will love us. God will love us. Jesus will reveal Himself to us, and will enjoy a relationship with God that the world simply cannot know. First of all, Jesus says obedience results in the Father and the Son loving us. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Maybe you're immediately thinking, wait a minute. I thought that the love of God was unconditional. This sounds like it's something we earn or something we merit. Well, Paul makes it plain in Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We saw in John three sixteen how God so loved this wicked world that he gave his only son on the cross to make provision for our salvation. But I believe that what Paul, I mean, what Jesus is talking about in our text is a deeper experience of the love of God. The Apostle Paul, he didn't have this text because John was written after Ephesians, but I think he's talking about maybe the same thing. In Ephesians three seventeen to 19, Paul is praying. And here's his prayer. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And you say, wait a minute, doesn't Christ already dwell in our hearts? Paul spent Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 talking about we're in Christ, we're in Christ, we're in Christ, and Christ is in us. Yeah, he's talking here about a deeper experience of Christ abiding in our hearts. And then he goes on, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ, which is which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so I think Paul there is talking about a deeper experience of Christ indwelling us and a deeper experience of the unfathomable love of Christ. And as I've been meditating on this passage this week, that's been my prayer for myself, for my wife, for my kids, for this church, that all of us would grow in the coming year to know Christ dwelling in us in a deeper way, to experience his love in a deeper way. And Paul says it's unfathomable. You know, you can't even begin to know the height and depth and and breadth and and width of Christ's love. 
And so that's what he's talking about here, Jesus. A second result of obedience is that Jesus reveals himself to us. Jesus says when, he, when we obey him, he will disclose himself to us. Now, I don't think he's talking about a mystical vision where, you know, you see a physical apparition of Jesus and hear him talking audibly to you, as some of our brethren seem to claim they have. I remember John MacArthur telling once about a pastor friend of his who said he sees Jesus all the time. And MacArthur was kind of stunned and said, really? And he said, yeah, he appears to me every morning while I'm shaving. And John's comeback was, and you keep shaving? (laughs) In other words, if you have a vision of Christ, you're going to do like the Apostle John in, in Revelation 1 where he says, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. And this is John who used to lay his head on Jesus' chest. I mean, come on. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is Christ revealing himself to us in deeper insight through his word. All of the Bible is about Christ. And yet we only get a little bit of it. At least I sure do. And every once in a while I go, whoa, and I just saw something else about Christ. Now, we see the principle that Jesus is presenting here in all of our personal relationships, and that is this. You don't reveal yourself to just anybody. You reveal yourself to people you know and you trust. Have you ever had the experience where you meet a perfect stranger and in a few seconds he's sharing some intimate detail of his life? It makes you uncomfortable because you think, I don't know this guy and he doesn't know me. Why is he telling me this? Uh, you, You share your heart secrets with people you know and trust. And Jesus here is sharing, saying he will share more of himself when we obey him because He knows then we're trustworthy. And so we're not talking again about some mystical, extra-biblical knowledge of Christ. We're talking about the knowledge of Christ that comes through pouring over his word, saying, Lord, would you reveal more of yourself to me through your word that I would know you? Uh, He will do that as we obey him. Now, again, just as a reminder, Jesus spoke these words to comfort and encourage his disciples in a time of trouble. And what he's saying is, what's going to sustain you guys when you get into the deep water, which you're about to get into, is knowing me more, knowing me better. I won't ask for a show of hands on this, but I have a hunch that many of you have never read the life of Hudson Taylor. And again, you're missing a life changing experience. I don't see how anybody could read the life of Hudson Taylor and come out the same. I've read it and reread it in several different versions. And if a new one comes out, I'll be the first to buy it and read it again. He was a man of God. He founded the China Inland Mission. He took the gospel of China into parts of China where it had never gone before. He faced many harrowing life-threatening experiences. His missionaries got slaughtered by the boxers 
in the Boxer Rebellion. He lost his first wife after 12 years of close marriage, Maria. John Pollock's Hudson Taylor and Maria tells that story very well. He lost several children. And one time he wrote to a fellow worker who was going through a difficult trial, and he said this, The one thing we need is to know God better. Not in ourselves, not in our prospects, not in heaven itself are we to rejoice, but in the Lord. And Taylor's favorite hymn was, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. So obedience then results in the Father and Son loving us, which I think means we experience his love on a deeper level. It results in Jesus revealing himself to us. And then finally, obedience results in enjoying an exclusive relationship with God that the world just cannot know. In verse 22, Judas, who is not Iscariot, thought about Jesus' statement that the world would no longer see him and his statement that he would reveal himself now to those who obey him. And so he asked this question, Lord, what then has happened that you're not going or that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Behind that question was the Jewish mindset that when Messiah came, he would manifest himself to the world in a glorious display of power, and he would set up a political kingdom. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the disciples, I'm sure, were all going, yes, it's here. He's going to reveal himself, and he's going to reign on the throne, and all that we've hoped for is coming to pass. And now just a few days later, they recognize that's not going to happen. Jesus' first coming was not uh, to set up a kingdom in this world in terms of a visible kingdom, but rather to reign in the hearts of his disciples. When he comes again, he will reign over all in governing all. But Jesus, in his reply, seemingly ignores Judas's question and repeats pretty much What he just said in verse 21, he's not going to reveal himself to this rebellious world. He's only going to reveal himself to those who obey him. And then in verse 24, he gives a final warning. The word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And he's underscoring there the enormity of the world's sin in rejecting Christ. And he's underscoring for the disciples This is the word of the living God to you guys, that you would obey me and all of my commandments. And so he's saying, in a sense, how can the living God make his home in the heart of those who are still rebels? He makes his home in the heart of those who obey him. But maybe there's another hint in what Jesus is saying that answers Judas's question. And that is God's method now of revealing himself to this rebellious world is through those in whose hearts he dwells. As we live Christ in this world, 
they see Christ in us. And, you know, we're the only Bible a lot of people ever read. They never open the Word of God and read it. But they're reading you and me. That guy's a Christian. You know, look how he's acting. Look how he's talking. What's going on? And so we need to joyfully obey Christ and enjoy his abiding presence in us so that he might manifest himself through us to this disobedient world. So, if you want to obey, I mean, if you want to grow to know Christ more intimately in this coming new year, figure out where am I not obeying him as I should. And hope your list isn't too long. If it is, shorten it to about one or two things. Prioritize it. Say, this is the key thing. I need to work on this. Uh, And then maybe a second thing. Otherwise, you'll be inundated with too many. But it sounds simplistic, I know. But what Jesus is saying, I believe he meant, and I believe it's true, that we will grow to know him more intimately as we obey him. Father, I pray that this would be a year of growth for me, for my brothers and sisters in this church, for our families, and that through us you would manifest yourself to this wicked world we live in as we joyfully, submissively obey you because we love you. And so I pray you would work that in our hearts. I pray, Lord, if anyone is here who has never come to the cross and received your mercy, that they would realize that it is granted freely by grace through faith to all who will come and receive it as a gift. And so I pray, Lord, that we all would believe the gospel, that we would live the gospel in the coming new year for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.